The views expressed by guests are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of their organization. Welcome to the Enterprise Knowledge Cast. This is ranked by Feedspot as the number one KM podcast. This is a look into the world of KM, information management, data management, and everything in between. KnowledgeCast is brought to you by Enterprise Knowledge. I'm Zach Wall, founder and CEO of EK. Today we're doing something a little different. I had recently written a blog on KM Trends of 2021, and one of those blogs is Headless CMS. So I've got two guests with me, Rebecca Wyatt, my colleague at EK, practice leader, and Naz Urbina, founder of Urbina Consulting, as well as founder and chair of the Omnichannel X Conference. And two experts on Headless CMS, they're going to explain to us what this is, what it's good for, what it'll do for your organization, why you should care. Naz, Rebecca, welcome. Hey, thanks for having us, Zach. Thank you very much, Zach. How did I do with those intros? Did I miss anything? Naz, do you want to give us a little bit more background on you? Oh, me? Little me. Yeah. So I have been consulting in decoupled systems or headless CMS now for, I'm coming on two decades, which makes me a little sad to say inside. But uh, it's, uh, it's interesting because it's becoming all the rage now. And it's very interesting to work on something for 20 years and then watch it suddenly become a buzzword in the space of uh, two or three. So I'm, I have lots of examples, usually been in medical devices, regulated industries, a lot of banking, pharmaceuticals, high-tech enterprise software, where you've got lots of audiences, lots of formats, lots of channels, like usual headless CMS use cases. Well, welcome. And I find that uh, 20 years is one thing. When you hit that quarter century mark, that's really where you just start shaking your head when you say it. Rebecca, how about you? Quick uh, background. Sure, absolutely. So I've spent my career really primarily at the intersection of learning and knowledge management and technology, just how people learn within organizations and how organizations can get more effective at managing their knowledge and information and their learning assets in particular. And headless content management is relatively new to that space. Um, that space has been a little behind more of our uh, front forward-thinking business users in spaces like marketing or banking or some of the spaces where NAS has been consulting for quite some time. And NAS and I have been working together on a few projects, particularly in the product documentation space. That's where we've kind of started working together because there's a lot of overlap between those kind of front-end business users and um, how we're documenting technical products and how we're pushing out customized versions of those technical products to users. And we've seen a lot of synchronicity in bringing the various domains in which we work together to leverage this technology. Great. So you've both started kind of flirting with what headless CMS is, but please give us a definition. What is this thing? Well, it is easiest to explain, you know, the term headless CMS is somewhat descriptive. It's a bit of a metaphor in and of itself. So basically what you're doing is you are decoupling the body, which is where you author and create the content from the head, which is where you're presenting the content. And so when you separate those systems, you allow yourself to create systems that really get a lot more specific about their domain and what they're designed to do. You can get a lot more sophisticated with the way that you're creating content and knowledge and information when you're separating that out 
from the presentation layer and letting the various presentation layers, which are also getting a lot more numerous and complicated themselves, to really specialize in rendering that information in the right way to the right audience. Got it. You know, we're going to need a couple examples of this because I'm not sure I get it yet. Naz, before we do that, any definitions on your side? Do you have your three-sentence definition of headless CMS that's going to help our users? I think that that was pretty much complete. What I would kind of add to it is that by its nature, by decoupling, it means that a headless CMS spends a lot more time on designing the content itself. You have to figure it out in a way and, and think about it in a way it's going to be ready for multiple or omni-channel delivery uh, in a way that you wouldn't usually if you were just crafting it for each individual channel. So that I don't know if it's a definition of CMS or, or a very inextricable side effect. Okay. And you mentioned omni-channel too. We should define this as well. The way that I talk about omni-channel, we're basically just saying you publish once, you create a, a chunk or chunks of content, and then it can go to different media in different ways. You can experience it one way on your phone, another way on your laptop, another way via email. Am I getting that right? What am I missing from that definition? Well, that would have, I would have given for my definition of multi-channel. We're trying to draw a line in the ground here and say it's not just a kind of a buzzword change from multi-channel to omni-channel because multi-channel we've, we have been doing for years, decades, where you have the ability to express out messages, content, data across multiple channels from a single source. And that has all sorts, all sorts of benefits, which we're going to talk about today. But the omni-channel bit is when you have a customer-centric strategy around that. So you're actually being more strategic when you pick your battles. So not just we have the ability to express all this out on all of our channels, therefore we should, but what is the best combination of the interactions of these channels? Like if someone picks up their phone and is next to a kiosk or is playing a game and also has a TV on and so on and so on. So you're thinking about the user and then designing all the content around them, leveraging the multiple channels that you might have in play. So it's it's the whole is the greater than the sum of its parts kind of thinking, as opposed to multi-channel, which is we want to be able to publish. So therefore, we want to be able to get our stuff out there on all these channels, which is a precursor step. Got it. From what I understand there, Nas, there's a major user experience component to this. You really need to understand what your users want and how they want to interact with this, right? Yeah, exactly. And you have, there's a major opportunity for innovation as well. Like this is, space is virgin territory for most organizations. I found that most organizations are just kind of worried about how can we save costs? How can we get stuff out there? How can we avoid risk? And are just scratching the surface of thinking, what could we deliver that no one's ever done before? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, We have all these channels now. What can we do if we have a camera and a small screen and a keyboard and a large screen all in the same room? You know, what kind of experiences could we design? So Rebecca, anything to add to that? So yeah, I wanted to just kind of pick up on that and articulate what that looks like for an individual, right? And then we can talk about what that looks like at an organizational level. So, you know, I know for me, when I'm interacting with media, very infrequently do I just passively watch a TV show in the evening. If I'm watching something like the State of the Union Address, I'm also following along on Twitter. I'm seeing what the New York Times is posting in response in real time. I'm engaging with that information. So when we start to think, as Naz was mentioning, about how we design 
those multi-channel and omni-channel experiences, we start to be strategic and to know that people are going to be engaging with this information through multiple channels and multiple ways and to design enriching and complementary experiences around that, which can be really exciting. So this is beginning to take form for me. I'm beginning to get the picture, but I'm not sure that I or the listeners fully get what this is and, and really how one would accomplish it. Can you both give me a little bit more on really what this looks like for an organization, how to design it and, and how to implement it, what it really looks like? Nas? So there's a lot to actually do, but it sums up quite simply, is that there's a, a deduplication effort across your content and as it is now, within the channels and across the channels, and you boil it down to what are the unique things that we say? And then you get them all down to these discrete chunks that say, uh, you know, these are the, the facts that we have, the messages that we have, the content that we have, and this is what it relates to. And you start to organize it based on not what pages it's on or what channels it appears in, but what is it about, who is it for, what problems is it addressed, and so on. So this is what we call structuring the content and adding semantics to the content, adding meaningful information, put some meaningful tags on it that says, this is useful for these people in these situations, for these models, and this security access protocol, and so on, and so on, and so on, and so on. And once you have those pieces marked up based on the who, what, when, where, and why, then they're ready to be pieced back together in the channels, often automatically, and, and ideally completely automatically, so that you can then offer content as a service to your enterprise, uh, or to your partners, outside your enterprise, even to your customers. And they can create through filters and through queries and demands or simply looking at a page, they will get the right pieces for them, uh, for their situation. And so that's a, it's a huge quantum leap away from manually crafting pages and then manually crafting apps and brochures and learning guides, et cetera, et cetera, each on a channel by channel basis through copy and paste. So to paraphrase there, and especially because I'm a taxonomist by trade, Naz, you're talking about the aboutness of your content, who it's for. You're talking about defining taxonomies that can categorize the content and then using those taxonomies to organize it, but also steer it, assemble it, leverage it in the right ways for the right people. Exactly. I would say that if you don't have a solid grasp of taxonomy and you're getting a headless CMS, it's like buying a car without an engine and then pushing or pushing each other around in it. It's it just doesn't, <laughs> you're not getting maximum use out of the out of the potential technology. Taxonomy is essential to headless CMS being effective. Got it. Rebecca, what do you have to add? And going back to this idea of really making sure that our listeners get what headless CMS is before we start talking about what you can do with that. Yeah, definitely. Naz and I work together quite a bit, and we often sort of have these conversations, and they fall out in a very similar way. We obviously start with the customer experience, with the user experience of the system that we're designing. We want to break things down into meaningful tasks and actions that people are trying to achieve with the content, with the information, and make sure that we have not only the right content structure, and also the right metadata strategy to enable those actions. The other piece of that that is obviously pretty significant is a bit of a system analysis. What tools do you have already within your toolbox? What channels are you already distributing to? Taking a look at within optimizing those user experiences, 
what channels might be missing, and then actually starting to architect the API layer that we would need to not only create those experiences, but to distribute them in a performant and an extensible way. You know, it's interesting, Rebecca, you say this is relatively new to KM. Naz, you say you've been doing this for 20 years. So what happened? What's changed? Why now? There's an abundance of platforms, that's for sure. I think there were relatively few platforms that uh, could customize that front-end user experience until relatively recently, and they have blossomed beyond belief. There are so many, you know, there are even smart appliances now. Think about all the ways that we have to consume knowledge and information. You know, I talked about how uh, Nas and I started working together to design uh, omni-channel and headless experiences for product documentation. Well, imagine if that product is an automated vacuum cleaner that cleans my house for me, Well, maybe one of the ways in which I can consume that product documentation is on my computer or on my phone, but maybe there are some that are pushed straight to the device. And the way that I want to consume that information when I have a question looks fundamentally different and that experience is different. And so designing for that kind of experience just has so much more potential than it did a decade ago. Yeah, I think that channel proliferation uh, is the kind of a, the buzzword that we use to describe that, is that brands or organizations, institutions kind of come into these things kicking and screaming. You know, we've been evangelizing, you know, I say we, you know, those of us in the, in the community for structured content has been evangelizing these ideas for decades, but it was only those who felt the pain. So if you were flying a plane in the 90s, you still needed to create several variants of each manual in each document for the maintenance crew, for the flight crew, and they wanted it on electronic flight bags in PDF, actually imprinted that you could take out in the old ring binders and stuff like that. So there were there were people who had multiple channels and multi-audience personalization concerns way back when, and now everybody does. You know, if you have a restaurant, you have minimum four or five channels that you're publishing on across social web, potentially third-party apps where you have to have a data feed of your product and so on. So there's just so many channels that no one can deny it anymore. So the technology's there, the need is there, and it seems like the understanding is getting there in many cases. So let's talk a little bit about specifics. I mean, what does an organization actually get out of this? Can you each give me a real story from your own experiences of what you've done and what the ROI or what the business value has been for the organization to really paint the picture? Naz, why don't you lead us off here? So we've talked about the customer experience potential here. This is one of the places where you can really differentiate because this is, this is something that most organizations are bad at, really bad at. I always use the phone ping pong example where you, you you call into organization and you do security check. You say who you are, you give your transaction ID, et cetera, et cetera. And then they transfer you to somebody else and they go, hi, who are you? <laughs> and you start the whole thing again. That happens in real life. And that's a content management issue and a data management issue. But the same thing happens in and across channels. So we navigate our way down into the knowledge base And then the commercial offers about it, where we could find out that there's an upgrade or a tool or something which could help us with our problem, are off over in the marketing side of the side of the website, which is managed by another group with another scheme and another way of organizing things and never the twain shall meet. So I, as a user, kind of have to keep drilling down all these rabbit holes and coming out again. And that's on just on one channel. So if you can multiply this by all of the channels, 
it's a mess out there. And that's, it's been documented. I believe it was, uh, I don't know if it was Forrest or a gardener, but somebody did a uh, customer experience state of the world and brands are delivering a worse customer experience today than they were five <laughs> years ago because they have all this stuff and they cannot keep it straight. And so if you can't keep it straight, of course, your customer sees all the gaps and holes. Yeah, you know, I love the service desk call agent type of example, Nas, because this comes up time and time again within the knowledge management field. The idea that self-service has one answer, you call and you get another answer, you get transferred to somebody else and you get yet another answer. So what you're saying is that headless CMS solution can start merging those worlds and really uniting the answer into a single, correct, consistent view of the world. Is that is that right? Yeah, well, yes, that's a fundamental. For me, that's, let's say, if we're going to talk about the core ROI stories that come up again and again with Headless, Please. Uh, that reuse is one of them. So am I able to get one answer, share it with everyone, and then if that answer changes, fix it in one place? Because I think that we, we get very focused on, are they consistent? But the world changes, and you need to make everything be consistent again based on the new data. So that's a very powerful application. That's a core application. You know, that avoids risks, litigation risks, inefficiencies, customer satisfaction, all sorts of stuff like that. The other benefit of differentiating yourself, if you can not only be consistent, but do something interesting, like use your different channels to do something engaging or interesting that adds values. Like, could you be reading something on the large screen and then have like key facts or notes appearing on the app based on your scroll position? There's all these opportunities to take that knowledge and extend it onto multiple devices and, and leverage it to multiple devices. Like um, the high-end cars now, the glove box manual, there's probably a paper manual there, but the main manual that they're intending you to use is an app because the manual for the car now leverages the camera. So you reuse it, you have the knowledge in the printed manual, but you can also simply point your phone at different things and it will tell you this icon means this, this error code means that. If you want to change this spare, here's the procedure for how you do it. So you're taking advantage of the channel's qualities in a new way to deliver a superior experience with your knowledge that you could not have if you're simply republishing a scrollable glove box manual to the phone. Yeah. And again, I think this is this addresses a real KM challenge, the idea that in a lot of your content, a lot of your documents, a lot of your different sources of information, you're repeating the same piece of information. And inevitably, we run into that challenge where in one case, that piece of information changes, somebody has to go hunting through 20 different sources and all these different media in order to be able to find all the places where they need to make that change one always gets missed. And in the best scenario, that's embarrassing. In the worst scenario, that's a regulatory issue. That's a fine. That's uh, somebody making a mistake. This has real implications. So the idea that one would be able to make that change once and have it proliferate through all of the various systems addresses a major KM challenge that we see over and over and over again. It addresses a major KM challenge. It also saves a ton of frustration and time Yes, it's a better experience for your customers. And yes, it minimizes some risk. But also, do your uh, content creators want to make the same content change in 10 different places? No, they do not. And I have worked with content creators and content maintainers who have maintained spreadsheets upon spreadsheets of complicated matrices so they can track 
when a change needs to be made, all the different places that it needs to be made, there is no reason that that needs to be a manual spreadsheet-based process where they're having to copy-paste and update content to all these different places. The amount of time that's wasted and the amount of frustration for your team members when they're put into that position is pretty considerable. And the expense, honestly, when you think about how inefficient those processes are. That's great, Rebecca. I I actually, this is really important to me. We always try to focus on what is that return on investment? What's the business value of knowledge management? And you just hit on a major point. If we're reducing the administrative burden of our systems and our content, if we're saving time for our users, what you just mentioned is really measurable. One story is frustrating, but when you multiply that across thousands of pieces of content, thousands of potential changes, these are FTEs. This is time savings in real people hours that leads to, to real ROI. That's, that's really valuable. Absolutely. What else? Naz and I just worked together with a client that when we asked them how many employees they had doing that exact type of work, it was about 20 full-time employees doing that kind of very manual content maintenance. And yeah, when you calculate the expense on that for a relatively small organization in that case, it was a considerable expense for them. Another example from the the learning and development space, I worked with a large federal agency. Creating reusable educational content was incredibly powerful for them. You know, very same value propositions, but just within a different context. When you're within the learning and development space, creating reusable assessment artifacts, questions, kind of reflection questions, reusable step-by-step process documentation that you can push out to uh, users who are learning a new process at the point of need. There's a huge push within the learning and development space towards micro-learning and spaced learning. We are moving away from the era of the hour-long e-learning course because no one retains information from the hour-long e-learning course anyway. Those things are good for compliance. I have to check a box saying that I sent my employees to this training, but they're not good for improved learning outcomes. What you really want to see is a short and engaging and interactive piece of content. And when you think about that, what that means is a proliferation and the volume of content when you want to leverage a strategy like micro learning. And so using this type of approach where you've got those reusable components becomes a mission critical for those types of organizations. Because again, when you need to update a larger volume of content, That maintenance issue, making sure that things stay in compliance, making sure that things stay up to date becomes essential. Rebecca, this this hits on a couple words that or phrases that we hear, one of them being learning at the point of need, the other being knowledge at the point of need. What you're really talking about is creating content in a digestible format so that the right people can act on it at the right time. Am I getting that right? That is absolutely correct. So how specifically does Headless CMS do that? I mean, I understand the idea of architecting content to be in smaller chunks, but where does Headless CMS come into play with that? So if you think about the learning and development space has typically been trapped inside of the insular world of the learning management system. So when you, again, kind of decouple the place where we're authoring content from the presentation layer, we can author well-constructed, smaller components of content in a content creation layer, and we can push out those reusable components via an API to a learning management system, to a different kind of portal, to a community of practice, to an intranet. 
And those smaller pieces of content can become reusable across multiple systems and multiple user interfaces. If you're training people to use a technical system within your organization, maybe they have to learn how to use your timekeeping system. For example, you can push content out to the system itself so they can see small components of instructional content actually at the point of need within the system in which they're going to apply that information. So there's lots of opportunities there. So we talk about findability a lot in KM, but you're actually going beyond findability. You're talking about pushing the right content to the right people, chunking it in such a way that you can actually deliver it? Absolutely. Now, on the findability end of things, when you structure content in these smaller components in this way, that has implications for how we design search experiences as well. If I have created this small componentized content that explains how to fill out my timesheet step by step, just as an, as an example, something that you'd have to teach your employees, that allows people to use natural language querying ask questions within your uh, search application and get an answer to their question. Maybe it's step four in the process rather than a whole document about the entire process. So you can design much more effective search experiences leveraging this technology as well. It's the same information. Instead of pushing the content out in a contextualized way, you're allowing users to query for it in a more contextualized way. Excellent. So you're getting into the piece of this that I was hoping we we would get there to be able to picture this. So I've enjoyed the conversation. We're talking about taxonomy and content architecture and use cases, understanding our users. This is all great stuff, but it's more about, to me, how do you design it than what it actually is? So Rebecca, you just mentioned APIs and you mentioned looking at tools and technologies. Let's get really technical for a second. What is a headless CMS product or what's the technology behind it? What's the code? What's the solution architecture? There are a lot of options in this space when we're talking about tools. We have built tools on a decoupled or headless Drupal environment before. So basically leveraging Drupal's content authoring itself and using the API layer to push content out to design content experiences for multiple end users. So we're basically transcending the ability to use something as simple as Drupal to create content and publish it to one forward-facing web application. Yes, you can still do that, but you can also leverage the APIs that are built into Drupal itself to push those components of content out to other presentation layers as well. Um, It could be something as simple as using APIs to distribute the content to email or to text messages But as we talked about um, designing those really custom and cutting edge user experience, we're really just scratching the surface of what is feasible, what is possible. You can use that API layer and the right structured content to create, you know, magic pretty much. Like, you know, we talked about pushing out components of content to physical billboards within a storefront like digital billboards that were within a physical space, being able to take a look at this person is located here. They walk past this billboard. We're going to show them this information based upon their location data. There are so many options there, but it really comes down to just using an API layer and architecting that that system. 
I always get nervous when a technical person invokes magic, but I, I get what you're saying and I like it. That's very cool. <laughs> now, is anything to add to sort of the very technical element of what is headless CMS? What would it look like in a diagram or how would an IT person approach it? Sure. So I think the thing that flips people out is this idea of two CMSs because they have some sort of CMS or what they call a CMS, a web CMS to handle their sites already or, and they might have multiple. And so the, what kind of freaks people out is this idea of what do you mean we need a CMS to feed our CMS? So it's creating is a layered architecture where you have a specialized area for authoring, governance, review, approval and metadata. And then you push that out to the various channels, which can then accept it, which may be one or more CMSs, applications, feeds to partners or, or other channels, chatbots, and so on and so on, print tool chains, and so on. So you have this kind of octopus system where you have the content living in the headless CMS, and then the many channels coming out of it, as many as you need. And this is what gives you the power is to be able to add them on as need be. And what every system must agree on is this, this central taxonomy. The taxonomy is the backbone that keeps it all together. So that navigation and metrics data collection and everything on all of the channels, they at least need to somehow map back to that core taxonomy. So everybody's speaking the same language and all systems know what they're receiving or what data they should be associating activity with and so on and so on. So those, I think those are the big ones. And a lot of organizations are putting taxonomy management or even ontology management in its own enterprise central system, which can live us alongside headless CMS as your other, it's one is a source of truth for your content and the other is a source of truth for your metadata. And and the, the big enterprise applications that we're seeing use those, that kind of one-two punch to then drive their omni-channel strategy. Got it. So publish once deliver to multiple channels, but then ensure that those multiple channels are interconnected for a single cohesive experience for the users. Am I getting it? Using your taxonomy as, as the unifying language for everybody. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You're architecting a more powerful system and there's an elegance to uh, making sure that you can create content once, publish to multiple user experiences, collect data across all of those user experiences about how that content and that information is being consumed and used, how effective the content that's being created even is, so that you can continue to optimize those omnichannel experiences that people are having with all of those uh, different interactions. Perfect. So that makes sense. Let's get a little bit into what organizations are doing with this then. I'm going to use what I call my perfect storm anecdote, which is a medical device manufacturer who has six or seven different personas. They have the different healthcare professionals in hospital using the devices who have different tasks they want to do and different things they're allowed to do. They have service personnel in the hospitals. They have service personnel in the fields who work for the brand. They have support personnel who the people in the field from the hospital and the other staff who are out in the field call back to when they have a port a problem, they call it the support desk. In support desk, they have multiple layers of support. They needed it all in some, something around 50 languages in multiple formats. And the different regions have different variations of machines as well. And technically, every single machine has its body of content that goes with it because it is at its point in its planned maintenance cycle and it has certain options and spares and things that have been swapped in. So it's basically 
it's comparable to an airplane. At any given time, there could be a dozen people who are working on this thing, and it could have any configuration of components, parts, and maintenance requirements. So they had trainers and technical people and all these different people on the system. So they needed a huge amount of deduplication to make sure that when they said something, it was the right information for that machine, for that person at that point in time in that situation. So what Headless gave them was the ability to lock down the content so that they knew that the right content was being delivered because they only had one copy of each time that they said it. They were able to reuse that in documentation contexts, in learning materials contexts, so that you know instructional designers could create learning plans that had the same exact reference tables as a technical documentation. And those same exact information would appear on the knowledge portal to somebody on the phone when someone called in a question, they could automatically format it all. So they were saving upwards of 50% of their formatting costs. They were saving upwards nearly 60% of their translating cost. And then they were also able to let the regions localize as necessary because they could take the pieces that they needed, add the pieces that they needed, create new configurations for their, for their local market and push it back out again. And reviewing it all is a kind of a hidden cost. You know, because if a lot of these organizations who manage knowledge or documentation or high-value content, to review and validate that, or what they call verification validation or VNV, that's really, really expensive people. Yeah. So if I've reviewed a piece of content and then you send me the learning guide for it and then the website version of it and the app content, I keep having to review this content. And I'm, you know, I cost the business tens of thousands, a hundred thousands of dollars a year. So my reviewing time is huge. And so they were able to slash all of those costs simply by moving to a new architecture, and a new approach for that content. Excellent. And, and that's a great example of KM ROI. You're talking about SMEs, oftentimes billing out at hundreds of dollars an hour, potentially cutting their time and costs in quarters or more because they're reviewing one master copy of something rather than every version. Exactly. That's great. Exactly. And if I'll add one little detail, they also, they had, didn't implement it by the time I left, and maybe they've done it by now, but that this was all laying the groundwork because they wanted augmented reality apps instead of manuals. They wanted engineers to be able to open a machine, point a camera at a device, zoom in with their fingers and get like arrows pointing saying, unscrew this, link that to the parts data and say, okay, if you order some parts, it'll be there in a week. And you can also substitute in these screws instead of those screws if you happen to have those on you. All that real-time data, they wanted to bring it all together in this next generation experience for the users as well. So this is interesting. That's your magic example, right? You both are talking about some pretty high-end advanced functionality. And what's exciting for me is that it seems like there's near-term value here. Some of the basics, content assembly, content chunking, some customization. But then this can go extremely far down the road. Let's talk about that a little bit more. What are these examples of where headless CMS is going or what it enables an organization to plan for? It almost sounds like you're invoking some artificial intelligence concepts here. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that we all probably need to accept is that we don't even know what the delivery channels of the future might be. We can start to imagine, you know, things like chatbots and artificial intelligence and things of that nature. but the reality is, I think one of the big benefits of headless content management is that it allows you to future-proof your content. 
you've got one place that you're crafting and creating this content and you're pushing it out to multiple delivery channels, it's much more extensible of a system to be able to add another delivery channel when the next opportunity presents itself and to design and further optimize your overarching user experience for the system. You're not locked into just one system. So you're able to add on as the new technology unfolds, and it definitely will. There's one thing that we've learned. It's that technology is constantly evolving. It's constantly changing. I hear another piece of ROI there. It seems to me that when you start talking about flexibility and avoiding lock-in, you're also avoiding vendor lock-in. This is more flexible that potentially allows an organization to not have to get stuck with one technology set that maybe they are tied to. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. You can architect a system that's flexible and extensible, and you can always sunset a particular presentation layer, add a different one, and your core content structure remains. You don't have to re-engineer all of that work. I had an example from uh, IBM where uh, someone had been through the experience of a rebrand before and after. So she led a team that had an application get rebranded, and they spent six weeks chasing down all the instances of the old name and literally just you know typing them back in. And then she switched over to a headless model where the name was handled in one place, and she literally had to update that and then republish everything, and she was done. That is a big difference, and that's a great story. Thank you for that one, Naz. So let's talk a little bit about how we get started with this. Y'all have mentioned several different sort of foundational concepts here, taxonomy, understanding your various users and what they're looking for, what they want to do, architecting your content, chunking your content. How does an organization really get started with headless CMS? Is there such a thing as prototyping this or in an agile fashion, doing sort of the baby steps to headless? How how does an organization really get rolling with this? I'm very passionate about this because I used to go in and model people's content for them. They would say, we'd like you to structure our content so we can reuse it and be consistent, review it once, automatically format it, etc. And for years, I just did that and eventually started pushing back and saying, are we sure that this is what we need to be publishing in the first place? Because they were architecting a system that allowed them to create the same target results without having thought about whether any of this stuff was any good. Hmm. So the first way to make sure that you're you're going to get the best ROI is using this as an opportunity to think about your customer needs and go, what do they actually need? Not what do we want to publish, but what do they actually require to do their jobs? So we go through a persona and user search phases for customer journey mapping. And we try to figure out you can prototype and you take one journey and one or a couple of audience types and say, what does this group need to accomplish this task versus how much are we publishing today? And you can see a before and after and say, look, right now we're giving them all this stuff. When we went and we looked at how they actually work, half of this is overkill. We don't need to be maintaining it and reviewing and translating it. You can just archive it all and then give them only what they need. So I think focusing on what you actually need and moving that over and prototyping that is the best way to to get the best bang for your book. I think in terms of prioritizing that work, because obviously you can't eat the whole elephant as it were and, and do this work for the whole enterprise at the same time in most cases, I think it really does, you know, uh, make sense to prioritize by task. Uh, and in my ideal scenario, you want to 
prioritize tasks that are going to add the most value to the organization or that are currently the largest pain points of the organization. There's lots of different ways to prioritize that. And ideally, honestly, looking for tasks that transcend business units and departments within the organization. Because one of the big benefits of architecting an enterprise system like this is that you're able to bring people into alignment. One of the stories that Nas told earlier, he talked about architecting a system where the same content was able to be reused by instructional designers and help desk people in different regions for localizing their content. You don't get those benefits if you're architecting content models and metadata strategy and headless content management for one tiny little siloed department. You want to take a look at the way the enterprise is achieving these tasks at a more holistic level and do the content engineering at that level. You don't have to do all of the tasks. Pick a smaller number of tasks to help you get started, but look at those things that have a broader touch. Yeah, excellent. And that's a very KM approach. Uh, so I'd like to hear that, Rebecca. Two things. One is trying to burn down the, the silos in an organization and find something that really cuts across the enterprise. But two, doing it incrementally, prioritizing that which might have the greatest impact for the organization or that, that which will really demonstrate the value for the organization. That makes a ton of sense. So there's a lot here. I feel like uh, you've done a wonderful job of painting the picture, but I also recognize we've likely just scratched the surface. For our listeners, where do they go next? How, how can they learn more about this? Well, I've got to mention the Omnichannel X conference. Uh, as I a, thought you as might. Program director. <laughs> <laughs> I've been program director for the past three years. It's a, it's a wonderful place for you to get together and learn. And there's lots of discussions about all of these topics, how you write for uh, reuse for multiple channels, how you strategize your people, how you build your taxonomies, how you build a content model, how you build your business case, and so on. And in terms of getting started, this one of those things in there, again, I keep coming back to taxonomy, and this has been transformative for my clients which is that if you do get your taxonomy worked out, which is your labels for the aboutness of your content, you can now give that to an artificial intelligence who can use natural language processing to read through X number, X thousands of content pieces and tell you which ones are talking about what to tag them for you automatically. And that that's a massive part of figuring out what you've got and inventorying it properly and planning your workload associated with one of these projects. And, and that's only been really available for, for a few years. So I think that's, that's a really exciting benefit that gets enabled once you have a taxonomy to feed into the machine. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about a technology that I think people have been promising for the last 20 years, effectively my whole career. And mm -hmm. we only really started recommending these tools about five years ago. The, the technology's really made leaps and bounds, and it's real now. It can really do what we want it to do. Rebecca? Just as a caveat to that, I think it's always good to be realistic about what auto-tagging can do. It is really good at feeding into the machine, recommending tags, and a human at this point should probably review and either accept or reject those tags. But the good thing about that is as you're doing that, you're training the AI, you're training the system, and it's going to give you more accurate results over time. Perfect. So that hybrid approach, computers are getting there, but they're still not as smart as humans and they don't really understand the intent like one of those SMEs can, but still drastically decreasing the amount of time if you were instead asking a human to do all the tagging. Exactly. Wonderful. Well, Nas, Rebecca, I really appreciate both of your time, your insights. 
Naz Urbina, founder of Urbina Consulting, founder and chair of the Omni Channel X Conference, Rebecca Wyatt, practice leader at EK. To our listeners, thanks for joining us for this episode of KnowledgeCast. To check out more information on KM, visit our website at enterprise-knowledge.com. Thanks, everybody.